This morning, though, <clears throat> we are getting ready to study the book of Daniel. We finished the book of Zechariah, and by the grace of God, over this break, we were able to turn in the commentary on Zechariah to the typesetter and the printer and everything, and we're going over that so that the commentary, Lord willing, should come out at Shepherd's Conference. So that's a, it's Joe and I, I think on Friday, received the proofs, and just to see a commentary actually look like a commentary, it, it makes it even more look profound. So uh, you, maybe you can judge a book by its cover. So in any case, uh, we are very grateful to the Lord for that and all the lessons learned there, but we are getting ready to go into Daniel. You say, why Daniel? Because Dr. MacArthur said that's the next book we're going to do. So that's, <laughs> it makes decision-making very simple in this regard. And so we are getting ready to, we are in the book of Daniel right now, writing commentary. And at the same time, we'd like to test that out in, a, in the best way and really edify and share what we've learned in the book of Daniel with you all for the next several months. But before we get there, it is so important that we get the background and the backstory, not just the history of Daniel and the history of the situation. That will come, and that's very important to understand what factually was taking place circumstantially at the time. But even more, we want to go a little bit behind that, a little bit beyond that immediate circumstance, really to survey all the Old Testament up to the book of Daniel. And that's actually my task this morning is to walk us through what has been going on in the Old Testament, what has been going on in the plan of God up to that point, the point of Daniel. And this is really fitting, this exercise of surveying through the Old Testament. It is very appropriate for three reasons, three reasons. And I want to just impress this upon you. One is the purpose of sojourners, the purpose of sojourners. You see, on one hand, we want to get into the Word of God in depth. You need to know every facet of the diamond of the Scriptures and to see the glory of God in the details. Every word of the Scripture is inspired, and every word should be preached, and every word is edifying. And so we need the depth, but you also need breadth. You also need the whole of the Old Testament. You want to be able to have facility with the Scripture. You need the well-balanced diet, theological diet of all the Scriptures. And so we want the depth of the Old Testament, but we have to balance it with the breadth of the Old Testament. And we need this. We need this because there is not a wasted word in Scripture. There is not a wasted thought in Scripture. There is not a wasted idea of Scripture. And sometimes when we read our Bible, we think, well, I understand what it's saying, but I don't see how that applies right now. It may not apply at the very moment that you are in, but it will apply sometime in your life. That's why God revealed it. And so we need the whole totality of all the revelation of God. And again, I stress, even if at the moment you say, I understand, but I don't see what this has to do with my life at the moment, save it for later because it will be used later in your life. You need this. This is the survival guide to our entire existence, everything for life and all that it has, and godliness, we need it. We need it. And I testify personally that that is the case. We need the whole truth. And so the purpose of Sojourners is to balance this tension of depth and breadth, and we have been going in depth, and so now it's a moment for us to go in breadth. 
Well, there's a second reason for why it's important to survey through the Old Testament, and that's to get the whole picture. That's to get the whole picture. We need to understand how things fit together. We need to understand that the Bible isn't random. Growing up sometimes in Sunday school, people would teach the following. They would start with Noah's Ark. I think if there was always a sermon people or a lesson people went to, it was always Noah's Ark for some reason. I don't know why. Even in modern day Sunday schools that I go to as I visit churches, that's the case. So they start with Noah's Ark. Then they talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Then they talk about David. Then they talk about Paul. Then they talk about Elijah and Elisha. Then they talk about the end of the world in Revelation. And then they talk about Genesis 1. And when I was growing up as a kid, I'm like, well, that's the order of the Bible. It starts with Noah's Ark. Then God destroys the world eventually and with a new creation, and then there's the old creation, and that's how it finishes. I mean, we have no idea of how this all works, and if there's a reason for why there is. But the reason we survey through the Old Testament is to say this. Nothing in the Bible's random. There's a reason for why everything is the way it is. There's a purpose behind it. And when you see the purpose behind it, you don't get lost. Sometimes when you read your Bible, you think, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what this means. I don't know why it's there. You need the whole picture. We often need this in our lives. It's why you have a map. And sometimes it's illustrated, and the reality of this is illustrated when you're in the car and you're trying to figure out how to get out of a place. And then on your app, the map zooms in and says, you are here. And you say, well, no kidding. I know I'm here. I want to get out of here. That's the problem. You don't want it to zoom in. You need it to zoom out. So you know your situation and how to actually get out of the parking lot and get back on the freeway back to your home. We need not only the minuscule details, they matter, we need the whole picture to have the whole, not just the part. It reminds me, sometimes I'm teaching hermeneutics class and I draw a circle on the board. It's the only thing I can draw. And it's a dark circle and I say, tell me what this is. And my students say, Dr. Chow, it's a circle. It's round. They're trying to give them as many profound descriptions as possible. And they say, Dr. Chow, it's dark. It's mysterious. They think that you're going to get extra credit for this. And then I complete the drawing. And I draw another circle and another dark circle. And they soon realize that's Mickey Mouse's ear. Yeah, the circle is a circle. Yes, it's dark. I guess it could be mysterious. But if you didn't know that it was Mickey Mouse's ear, you missed the point. You missed the point. And sometimes when we read the stories of Scripture, we are so focused on things we don't know what the point is. And we get confused by it and overwhelmed by it and disoriented by it. And we don't know how to apply it because you don't have the big picture. We don't just need the part. We need the whole. We need the whole picture. And so there is the purpose of sojourners. There is the whole picture of scripture that we need in the plan of God. And finally, there's a platform. There's a platform. As we survey through the Bible, my prayer is that there would be great compelling reasons for us to dive deeper into the scripture, that we would be inspired, so to speak, to do so. And at the same time, we would see that based on the foundation laid, 
We can get deeper into the word of God because we know what this is about and we know the way this text, this passage, this book should be read. That what we talk about here in the big picture serves as a platform to get deeper because we gave you a head start, so to speak. We gave you a push through this message into the word of God, into an overview that allows you to grow in the depth of scripture from there. And particularly, we don't just want this for this morning, that is, on all the books of the Bible, although I hope it is edifying in that way. We want it particularly on the book of Daniel. We want to particularly on the book of Daniel. The outcome of this, and hopefully the outcome of every book we study, is locking into our minds that there are books that you go to. There are books that you always go to. If you have an issue in your life, if there's a circumstance in your life, if there's a problem in your life, if you need a certain kind of truth in your life, you say, this is the book I need to go to. This is the book I need to go to. And every book, God raises it up providentially for a reason. It is not random. And every book is distinct. No two books are the same because none of them are copy-pasted. And each book has a reason. And once you lock in that reason, when you say, I'm discouraged, I don't know if my work means anything, you go to the book of Haggai. If you wonder, does God really care about his promises? Does he remember? You go to the book of Zechariah. If you are thinking, I I need just to renew my mind in the heights of heaven and to encourage my own soul in trial, you go to the book of Psalms. If you think about, oh, what uh, we're just struggling with unity, I'm struggling with humility, you go to the book of Philippians. Oh, if you think, I, I just need to know the glory of the church, I'm discouraged by that, you go to the book of Ephesians. Oh, I need to understand the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ and and be enduring in my perseverance and loyalty to him, you go to the book of Hebrews. You, You have to lock into your mind, this is the book I go to. This is the book I go to when I face this. And each book has that. And the praise is this. You only have to memorize 66 ones of them. They don't expand because canon's closed. But at the same time, it is the most practical exercise in life. Not just for your own soul, but somebody else might say, I'm really struggling with this. You say, I just go to this book. Just go to this book. This is all, this is this is the book designed for you. This is the book designed for that issue. And so my prayer is that we accomplish the purpose of sojourners and balancing depth and breadth and give a whole picture that glorifies God and his plan. And it's a platform not only on the whole of scripture, but for the book of Daniel. And you think. When I'm in this circumstance in my life, I think about Daniel. I think about Daniel. I want to think about Daniel. And that is the goal. And so I would like to survey the scripture through three parts, because that's what we do in sermons. We always have three points. And they're alliterated. And we got to start at the beginning. So the first point is the start. The start. And that goes back to Genesis. You, uh, I, if we're thinking, are you really serious going to survey all the way from Genesis to Daniel? Well, that's why the first point is the start. And you have to start with Genesis. And so here we are. Let's talk about the book of Genesis. And it's absolutely vital that we do so. Because if you don't understand the book of Genesis, Daniel will be very difficult. You won't have the whole picture. And there will be things in Daniel that seem bizarre. But once you understand why they're there... It's glorious, and I hope to show and illustrate that in this first point, the start. It's very fascinating. When we think about the Old Testament, we often think about, oh, it's Israel. It's about Israel. You're right. There's a lot of books about Israel. 
Almost all of them, in some ways, intersect with Israel. It's true. But Genesis doesn't start with Israel. Genesis, you could argue, well, it's, it starts with man. Well, that's true. It, it does start with man in a very generic sense, but actually it goes broader than Israel and broader and higher than man. It starts with God. Because what Israel needed to learn and what we needed to learn is that this story, this plan, that is not just a myth or fiction. It is not just literature. This is reality. What everything begins with and our starting point and every point of everything is not us or a nation. It is God. It is God. He is the main character. He is the driver of all things. He is the standard. He is the litmus test of fidelity and infidelity. He is the main one, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. You weren't there. I wasn't there. We don't matter in that regard. He does. This is about his glory, his honor. And Genesis gives a very clear thesis, a very clear assertion of how we understand God. And that is, that he is the sole creator, that God is God over all things, the ruler over all, the absolute sovereign, the distinctive one. Everything is created, but he is the creator. Everything has a beginning. He has none. He always is. And every place, if you think about Genesis chapter 1, the first three days of creation, you get the spaces that he makes sky and sea, and dry land, and everything that fills those spaces. If you think about days four, five, and six, you have the animals that, or you have the, the, the luminaries that fill the sky. You have the animals, day five, that fill the sky and the sea. And then you have on day six, you have the animals that live on the land that was created on day three. Every space and everything that fills the space is under the sovereignty of God. That is the message. He rules over every place and over everything. He even rules over time because he defines time. It is in the beginning, and it was evening, morning, one day. He defines the nature of time, and everything is an announcement of his glory. That's why he even makes man in his image. Man is meant to reflect an image the glory of God. And what does God command man? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The whole earth, if man is imaging and reflecting the glory of God, then God's glory will fill the earth as man fills the earth. God's glory filling the earth was always God's purpose. The glory of God the saturation of his glory, the consuming nature of his glory throughout all creation, that was always his purpose. This is exactly why the Sabbath exists. What was created on the Sabbath day? Nothing. What existed on the Sabbath day? Everything. And what did God say on the Sabbath? He made it holy. Because everything that exists, everything in creation, has one destiny and one purpose. It is holy to Yahweh. It is holy to Yahweh. And so God made this creation. He made it wonderful. And he even demonstrated it is all about his reign and all about his supremacy, not only by giving man uh, his image and making man in his image, 
but it is even this allowing man to be delegates of his authority. He tells man and blesses man and says, have dominion over the earth, just like God has ultimate dominion. We are meant to always be reflecting the sovereignty of God, even in our actions and our creativity and in our ingenuity. He puts man in a place called Eden. Have you remembered in Genesis chapter 2, Eden has all these rivers running through it. Remember that? And have you ever wondered why there are rivers running through Eden besides the fact that there were? Why does the Bible mention it? It's simple. Because the rivers, they, they are the fountain of life, so to speak. You need water to live, so to speak. And having all the rivers run from Eden shows this is the center This is the center of life. This is the center of existence. Put it simply this way, Eden was the capital of the world. That's what God was establishing. Eden was the capital of the world. And so you have a delegate king, that's man. You place him in a place that demonstrates a capital of the world, the center of the world, that's Eden. You give him a helpmate, that's woman, that's alongside of him. And then on top of that, God places a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sometimes when we read that, we think, why did he do that? He's just testing people. Is he just like lording it over them? This is a post-fall way to read something pre-fall. Be careful. That's how we look at things now because we're sinful. But back then, they never had that sinful thought. Putting the tree in the garden was not a bad thing. Otherwise, God couldn't say that his creation was good. Putting the tree there was good. It was an act of worship. Because what did man say by not eating the fruit? God alone has the power over knowledge of what? Good and evil. God alone is the definer of right and wrong. And if you define what is right and wrong, you're the king. You're the king. And so while man had delegated authority, what was man always supposed to do and point to and say? But our authority is not ours. Our authority is not final. Our authority is borrowed from who? From God. And the tree was meant to be man's act of worship, to tell and express to God and to show all of creation the reality of the supremacy and the transcendence and that truly, like our Lord said later on in Matthew 28, All authority on heaven and earth belongs to him. That was the goal of the tree. That was the goal of the tree. Now, if you think about it then, everything in this paradise announces king and kingdom, that God rules and he should rule forever. That's what this is all about, that our God, there is no one who can rival him. No darkness can can battle him. In the ancient Near East, when God, a God wanted to create something, there was a war to make it happen. In Genesis 1, when God says, let there be light, the darkness doesn't say, well, I don't like it. I don't want there to be light. No, there's light. There's no conquest. There's no struggle. There's no strife. It just happens exactly the way God says it. Why? Because he's king. That's what it really means that he's king. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is this massive announcement. Our God, he's not like the other gods, so-called, one of many, weak and fighting and struggling. He's the transcendent king. 
and there is no one like him, and there is no one who rivals him, and he is final, and he is other, and he is ultimate. Now, we know that there is a challenge, though. In Genesis chapter 3, we understand that there is a satanic plot, as in Genesis 3, the serpent, one of the creatures, starts to subvert a woman who then subverts man. You take the entire paradigm. You take what God has established and turn it on its head. And the entire goal was for creature to subvert woman who subverts man who subverts God. It is a diabolical plot to overthrow God from this world. And in a lot of ways, you might say it looked like it initially worked. Man, woman was deceived. Man ate the fruit Wrath comes down, and all these terrible, terrible, terrible consequences start to take place. We know there's blame that starts. There's separation from God that happens as they hide from God. There's even shame because they realize that they are naked and their bodies are twisted in that regard. There's a physical detriment. And every single disaster and every single wrong thing and bad thing that happens in our lives, you can trace back to Genesis 3. You want to talk about people who have body issues? Genesis 3. You want to talk about economic issues? Well, when you have thorns and thistles, you have scarcity. That creates economic problems. You want to talk about medical issues? How about death? That's from Genesis 3. Every issue you can imagine is Genesis 3. It all comes from sin, and it all spurs from the concise way the Bible narrates the catastrophic disaster that results and ensues from one man's disobedience. Just to illustrate how tragic this is and how the serpent deceived. Notice in the text, if you're in Genesis 3 for a moment, and you're probably familiar with it, verse 5, what does Satan say through the serpent? He says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, like God. And you say, well, that's not true. Well, hold on a second. Notice, notice the serpent says some things that are true. Your eyes will be opened. Notice that when they ate the fruit, their eyes were what? Opened. And that they did know good and evil. They just knew it the wrong way. You see, what the, what the serpent knew, <laughs> and what they didn't know, Adam and his wife didn't know in their innocence, is think about this. Man and woman were created not like God, but they were created in God's what? Image. Now, what's more intimate? If you're in the very spitting image of your father, or if you're just like your dad, yeah? Satan knew. He wasn't telling a lie per se. He was deceptive to be sure, but he was telling the fact, you will be like God. He just sold the thing as a promotion when it really was a what? A demotion. It's kind of like the used car salesman saying, this car has an excellent anti-theft device. You say, really? impossible to steal. Amazing. It has no engine. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Great gas mileage. No problems. You know, a hundred percent reliable of what I've just said. You know, never will go anywhere. You know, no one can move it. You know, it's amazing. And 
when you really stop and think about it, you think, that's a disaster. Why would you ever buy that? That's worse than a lemon. Yeah, this is Satan. He has sold a downgrade as an upgrade. And they bought into it, and everything downgraded. Everything was a disaster. And you think, in this moment, when it seems like this whole beautiful paradise, this paradise that announces king and kingdom, the total supremacy of God has been compromised. What Doesn't this mar? Doesn't this defame? Doesn't this downgrade the sovereignty of God? And the answer is no. No. God at that moment comes in. He asks Adam, where are you? Initiating salvation. He knew where Adam was. He's seeking him out. That's the point. And he gives the most amazing promise. Genesis 3.15. The gospel before any gospel was ever revealed. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this is the message, simple. Satan, you never won. You never won. Satan thought he could manipulate the woman. And what does God say? I will put enmity between you and the woman. You didn't win her. And Satan thought, well, maybe I could take over the world through this. And God said, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. You didn't win history either. I will always have a remnant. I will always preserve a line. I will always preserve a people. You did not win this battle. You did not win history. And you will not win ultimately. One of those seeds, he will what? Crush or bruise your head. When your head is bruised under the heel of the man, Satan, you will know you are defeated. You are defeated. And in fact, this is why God causes and reformulates serpents to crawl on the ground as a permanent symbol to Satan, as a permanent message to Satan. You will be crushed. Everything in this creation has been ordained to depict you will be bruised. You will be fatally wounded. That's why the serpent must crawl on the ground. But notice the pronoun here, he will bruise you. Notice that he is singular because it's talking about the Messiah. But notice the he is a he. If you look at the text, so far the pronouns that have been emphasized are female. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So you would expect that the next pronoun following the pattern would be she, but it's not. It's he. Who's the only other he outside of God and woman who are at the scene? Adam. Man. Why? Because what's the message? The message is there will be another Adam. There will be a final Adam. And he will come. And he will destroy you. It'll come at a cost. You will bruise his heel. Why? Because when you smash a serpent's head with your foot, I mean, it does hurt your foot. But nevertheless, he will have victory. And you say, why does that matter that it's the final Adam besides the fact that, you know, Christ fulfills Adam and that's paramount and important? This is very essential because this is what we call ironic retaliation. Ironic retaliation. You say, what does that mean? God, Satan thought that he could use man to overthrow God. So what does God do? He uses man to destroy Satan. And God says, you will never win. You have never won. 
Every single thing, every single point, every single aspect of your scheme and your plan to overthrow me, I will counter and I will destroy. This is God's message of Genesis 3.15. Our God is undefeatable. And so now we have the agenda. Yes, God reigns. How will he prove his reign? How will he demonstrate his kingship and his kingdom? He says, I will preserve the line. And I will raise up from that line the ultimate king. And that king will restore everything back to rights. That king will establish the true kingdom. That king will be the final Adam, the ruler over all creation as Adam was supposed to be. That's the agenda. That's the goal. And it demonstrates that God is undefeatable. I hope you learned this from the beginning. No matter what happens in life, there is never a moment that God loses. There is never a moment in that regard that God has to take a step back because there was a setback for him in that sense. No, it's all moving forward. He is undefeatable. And furthermore, he will make all things right. What do we mean by all things? We mean all things. This is our father's world. He has designed it all to be holy. He has designed it all to be very good. He has designed it all to be unto him, and it will be that way. Every molecule in the end will sing the glory of Christ in the end. And there will be nothing in our experience and nothing in matter and nothing in substance that will be deviant from him. He will redeem it all. And all of that is contingent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you understand this, Turn with me to Daniel 7, because then things start to make some sense. In Daniel chapter 7, you don't have to get far to understand these truths and to see why this matters. The beginning really is like the end. It really is. They're tied together. The goal of the beginning must be the outcome at the end. And look at Daniel 7, verse 2, as Daniel's having this epic dream. He answers and he says, I was just looking into the visions at night, and behold, four winds of heaven, and they're stirring up the great sea. Now think about this with me. On one hand, when we read Daniel 7, like other things, we think, oh, all these symbols are so confusing. How do we figure this out? We can figure it out step by step. That's why we're going to preach through this slowly. But we don't just want to think about what the symbol means. We want to know why in the whole wide world did God choose that symbol as opposed to another symbol? He could have described all this through all kinds of pictures, right? It's like divine Pictionary. You could do that. But he chose this one for a reason. Think about this. Where do you have the picture of sky and sea? Where do you have the picture of the wind stirring up the waters? Where do you have the picture, verse 3, of then animals coming into the scene? Where do you have the picture of verses 9 through 13 of one like a son of man, a son of Adam who reigns over all creation? Where do you have sky, then sea, then animals, then man? Where do you have that? Genesis chapter 1. Daniel 7 is just like Genesis 1. It's meant to be a parallel. Why? Because Genesis 1 said there should be a man that rules. There should be a man in the image of God. There should be a man who has dominion to the ends of the earth to reflect the glory of God and that he is the ruler. Daniel 7 says, let me tell you in the end, 
there will be a son of man. Not just in the image of God, but who is the image of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will have dominion to the ends of the earth. And he will be the ruler. Nebuchadnezzar, you tried. Darius, you tried. All rulers tried to be that final Adam, to be the one ruler over all. But Daniel says, but I will tell you who that one truly is and who it has always been reserved to be, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you know why the imagery is the way it is in Daniel. It's not random. It's not, ooh, parade of animals, cute. This is something profound about the glory of Christ. He doesn't just rule over you and me. He doesn't rule just over Israel. He is the ruler of everything in this created order. Every molecule owes its allegiance to him. And that is the message of Daniel. That is the message of Daniel. That's how the story starts. And the way it starts, as Daniel will pick up, is the way the story ends. That is his glory, and we need to understand it. We need to see it and be aware of it. Well, in addition to that, though, we just talked about the start of the story. You have to talk about the rest of the story, and that's striving. That brings us to the second point, striving. God has a plan. The plan is Genesis 3.15, to bring him glory, to show that he's king. He has an agenda. He has a purpose. That's what was started, and now he needs to maintain it, and God does so in glorious ways. He does so in glorious ways. Sometimes we wonder, why can't God just hurry up the process? You know, Genesis 3, I will, you know, there will be somebody to crush your head, and then Jesus just comes down and, done, Amazon, two-day delivery, done. (laughs) Why can't that happen? Yeah, I agree, it's more efficient, if the world centered around you or me. But if the world doesn't center around you and me, and it really doesn't, then God does things in a way that brings honor to him and to his son. And you just have to enjoy it. Or really, you get to enjoy it. And that is what we start to see. God preserves this line of the seed. It's amazing to see. He preserves it against faulty lines that have come up like the line of Cain. And Satan, in another diabolical plot, uses Cain to do a preemptive strike against God's plan, and he takes out Abel. We remember this story. But the amazing thing is that God says, you do realize, Satan, that um, Adam and his wife can have more than two kids. You do know that, right? What? Yeah. And the third kid they have, his name is Seth, which means appointed one. Why? Because he's the appointed one. You killed the wrong guy. Sorry, Satan. You lost again. That is the glory of God as he just keeps his plan moving against faulty lines, against the faulty world. The world, because of God's curse, is under corruption. We know that. And it is so catastrophic that it appears that there wasn't even consistency of seasons and rain and the ability to cultivate anything. It was a disaster such that Lamech prays in Genesis chapter 5, Lord, I have this kid named Noah whose name means rest. May you give us rest from our labors of struggling against this world. Careful what you ask for. God might answer. And God did answer. He sent a flood. 
And on one hand, the flood is a global judgment, no doubt about it. But the flood simultaneously washes the world so that there is restraint, that that evil and the degradation and the curse of the ground can be restrained. In a modern equivalent, it's like giving a kid a bath. It's judgment, for sure. <laughs> Ask any kid, right? Very few just enjoy it. There's a reason why they have bath toys and a whole industry about coaxing kids into the bathtub. It's judgment. But everyone knows it's also cleansing at the same time. And the flood is giving the world a bath. It's giving the whole world a bath so that the line and the plan of God can continue. And it's not just you have to preserve the line against all the faulty lines and not just preserve the line against the created world. You have to preserve the line against its own depravity. Because what happens when man joins together? We know that from the Tower of Babel, they go one direction, and that is to rebel against God. So what does God do? He fractures man. He pits man against man. It's like checks and balances in that way. So too as to restrain depravity so that God's plan can continue onwards. Two things to say about that. You do realize that all these things that happen at the beginning, they are graces to us. We presume them. Every day you have a normal day, and it's not as bad as it could be. And for every believer and unbeliever on this world who has some semblance of kindness in their life and goodness in their life, it's because God at the beginning ordained it that way. Every day is a day of grace. We will never, especially believers, we will never know all that we deserve. You will never ever experience even the fullness of whatever you think you deserve. And we know we deserve. It's all grace. It's all grace. Because God has restrained everything. He's restrained the creation and its degradation. He's restrained depravity, even through government and even nations. But when you do that, and here's the second thing, it's not just the act of grace. You create the need. If you create all these different nations, then you need a nation to witness to those other nations. And that's why you have the nation of Israel. That's why they exist. Because if you have to create nations to restrain and check and balance other nations and humanity, then you need a nation to witness to that nation. And what is Israel's announcement? It's simple. It's the announcement of Genesis 3.15. It's the announcement of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, our God reigns. God promises in the Abrahamic covenant three things to Israel, land, seed, and blessing. Land. Why do they have to have a piece of land? It's like Eden. There will be a day when things will be made right, and Israel will dwell in the land, and it will be the epicenter of the earth, and it will be like Eden. There's God reigns. God reigns, and he will reign. Why promise seed? Not only because of a numerous nation and many nations that come from Abraham, the father of many nations, but ultimately the seed, the king, will come from them. God reigns, and he will reign. And blessing. What kind of blessing have we been talking about? The blessing of Genesis chapter 1. The blessing of the original kingdom. God reigns, and he will reign. And Israel's announcement to the world is, our God reigns, and he will reign. Many things are revealed. 
that you need faith because Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness, that God fights for us. The name Israel even means God fights for us. And we know at the end of Genesis, what does Joseph say to his brothers? You meant it for evil, but what? God meant it for good. Why does he say that? Not only because it's true, but Moses writes that under inspiration to remind us of this central lesson. At the beginning of Genesis, there was evil, but God meant it for what? Good. You got a taste of what God can do to turn everything around in Genesis 37 through 50, but he will do that with all creation. He will do that with all creation. And here is the message. Our God reigns. He reigns now. He fights for us. You trust in him. He turns evil to good and he will reign. He will reign in the end. That's why in Genesis 49, as the line that has been preserved in Genesis 3.15 continues on, and we know it goes from Adam and his wife, through Noah, through Shem, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and then through Judah. And there's a prophecy about Judah in Genesis 49.10 and 11. It says this, the scepter will not depart. They will not depart until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh is from the word shalom, which means peace. There will be peace. You say, what kind of peace? It says this in Genesis 49, 11. It says this, that they will wash their clothes in wine. Okay, on one hand, you might say, that doesn't make a lot of sense unless all your clothes are purple. Why would you do that? On the other hand, you start to realize then, because there's more wine than there is water. Because which means that there are, the grape produce is plentiful because creation has been so restored that all the bounty of the earth is so full. You can have more grapes and, the, and more agriculture than there is water on the planet. At that moment, world hunger is no more. It's no more. World hunger, by the way, hunger, by the way, is a result of the fall about the curse. It says this, that this king will drink so much milk that his teeth will turn white. And you're wondering, so if, is that like the new white, you know, the Bible's whitening teeth plan? You know, just go to Ralph's and buy many gallons of milk? No, don't, don't do that. But the idea is there's so much milk, which means there's so many cows that the milk production will be so fruitful and powerful and plentiful that there will be no more hunger, no more thirst. Everyone will drink as much as they want. It'll even dye your teeth white because you drink so much. That's the idea. It's a new creation. You want to know peace? That's peace. When every ounce of the curse, as far as the curse is found, even in animals, even in crops, it's gone. It's gone. Our God reigns, and he will reign. That is the message of Israel. And so from Genesis, as Joseph settles down in Egypt and Israel settles down to Egypt, then to the book of Exodus, well, what is, if they're in Egypt, you know they can't stay there. They've got to get back to the promised land. So they need to get out of the promise, or they get out of Egypt to the promised land. And so God takes the opportunity to launch the nation of Israel in that mechanism, in that moment. And so you have plagues. And what is the message of Israel as God launches the nation? God reigns and he will reign. You see, what are the plagues? Why are there 10 plagues? Have you ever wondered why 10? Why not seven? Why not 12? Why not 144,000? That would be a lot. But why 10? 
Some scholars rightly argue that it's because God spoke ten times in Genesis chapter 1 when he created. And the ten plagues are all designed to announce, I am the creator. I am the one who rules over the ground. I am the one who rules over the water. I am the one who rules over the sky. That's why there's locusts. I am the one who rules over everything, and I am the one who rules over man. I decide which man lives or dies. Final plague. And at the same time, why ten plagues? It's also because it's an attack on the Egyptian pantheon. It is an announcement. I am the creator, and I am the only one who is the creator. Think about this simple example. Why did God turn the Nile into blood? You say, so they can't drink it. Well, there's a lot of things you can do to make the water undrinkable. You could turn it into jello. You could turn it into licorice. You could dry it. You could make the water just part permanently. You could do all kinds of things. Why turn it into blood as opposed to mud? That would work too. You can't drink mud. Why turn it into blood? Because you can't make this up. The god of the Nile in Egyptian theology, his name is Happy. Okay, not H-A-P-P-Y, it's H-A-P-I, but it's the same idea. So, happy, that's the god of the Nile, and now the Nile's all bloodied. Why? Because happy's dead. God killed happy. That's what happened, and that's the message. God showing, I reign. I am the creator. I am the sovereign one. And I will reign. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, what was the first structure he had them build? The tabernacle, yes? And if you think about the tabernacle, its construction is not random. Its construction is there's blue parts of the tent and purple parts of the tent, and, and there's, you know, there's the candelabra or the menorah inside that shows the light, and there's bread inside and everything. Why is it constructed the way it is? It is meant to look like Eden. And here's the message. There's a way, even though paradise was lost, that paradise will be regained. God reigns, and he will reign. His kingdom will come back. It will all be made right. And Israel is meant to announce this over and over. That's even found not only in the book of Exodus, that's found in the book of Leviticus. We know the book of Leviticus deals with God's holiness in such a powerful way, in a lofty way. And we know that the standard is high, but Leviticus 26 says this, if you become holy, now that's a big if, we recognize, and we know that's only possible because of Christ, but if you become holy, this is what God says, Leviticus 26 verse 12, he says this, if you become holy, I will walk among your midst. Now that word walk is a pretty rare word in Hebrew. It's the same word where it says Enoch walked with God and then God took him, the most intimate walking. It's the same word found in Genesis chapter three where God was walking where? In the garden. God says, if you are holy, if you become holy, and there's a way to do that, and I've illustrated it in the book of Leviticus, We can go back. We can go back to the way everything once was. And paradise lost will be what? Paradise found. I will walk among you freely. That's the message of holiness. And in Numbers, we learn the same message that God rules and he will rule. 
we know that God is holy, and we see that holy agenda played out, and the nations are going to learn that. Why? Because when Israel is assembled, and you can read the book of Numbers, and you can see how the marching orders are given, Israel marches surrounding the tabernacle. What's the message? God is central. God is central. He's the king. And they march in battle order. Why? Because they're heading to war. Why? Because people are unholy, so they need to be what? Judged. It's a clear message. It's a clear message. Our God rules. He's the king, and he will rule. The nations see firsthand what it means that God is holy because he judges Israel throughout their entire sojourn in the wilderness. And as they get near to the promised land, as they get near to the land of Canaan, they send their God whisperer, this guy named Balaam. You remember him with the talking donkey? And they send Balaam to figure out if God can be manipulated and if God, what is the purpose of God in doing all of this? And Balaam is controlled by God and he cannot manipulate God. Rather, God manipulates him and God conveys a very clear agenda. Four oracles. One says this, I have a set destiny for Israel. Second, you can't change my mind. I'm not a man that I can repent. And third, the destiny is glorious. It says this, that the the valleys will be filled and there will be fruitfulness forever. This is a new Eden, again. And then the fourth message is this, and there will be a star that arises from Jacob and he will crush your head. Where have you heard the language? Crush your head. Genesis 3.15. What is Israel's message? God's message about Israel through Balaam to the world that is asking, I reign. You cannot change my mind. I have a plan set. I will make this world right, and I will deal with unholiness. I will do all those things, and there will be one. There will be one who will rule over all. The one that I promised in Genesis 3.15. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, as Israel's on the plains of Moab, this message of that God reigns and he will reign, that is reiterated. At that, uh, on the plain of Moab, God explains to Israel, what do you do with a God who reigns like this, who protects like this, and who will raise up a seed to conquer everything and make all things right? You love him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you look forward to the right king that is to come. Deuteronomy 17 even gives the law of the king that he can't multiply girls and he can't multiply giddy up, that's horses, and he can't multiply gold. And it also alerts us in that same chapter and later that there will be a prophet like Moses to come and you look out for him. Why? Because Israel's problem is this. You're supposed to love God with all your heart. But God says this, you don't have the right heart to love me. Deuteronomy 29. But then God promises this, but I'll give you the right heart. I will circumcise your heart, Deuteronomy chapter 30. So what is Israel supposed to look out for? They are supposed to look out for the one who is the new Moses, who will bring them a new covenant, unlike the covenant that Moses brought, and it will actually circumcise their heart. They're looking for one who, like Moses, comes down from a mountain. Do you remember this? And when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, Everything in the Old Covenant was about curse. If you read Deuteronomy, you can read that there's about like seven blessings. And then there are approximately, I don't know, 50 other verses about curses in Deuteronomy. It's five to six times more curses than blessings. Everyone should get the message, what this covenant is about, yes? But when another person walks down from a mountain and gives the sermon on the mount, what's the first word of the sermon on the mount? We just read it this morning. Blessed. And that tells you everything. This is the true Moses. This is the final one. And he will make all things right. 
There is a plan. God reigns, and he will reign, and he will bring forth Genesis 3.15, the one who will reign over it all and make it all right and even redeem the heart. And on the plains of Moab, as Israel is getting ready to come in, that is the maneuver, that is the purpose, and that's exactly what starts to happen. As Israel settles in the land, history takes a decided turn to focus on that one. That's why you conquer the land, Joshua. That's why in the book of Judges, it says this, there was no what in Israel? No king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You need a king. That's why Ruth is this beautiful book. It's not just a beautiful love story, but it ends in a beautiful way because the line of Ruth becomes the line of the king. And in First and Second Samuel, you see the line of the king picked up. You see who is the true king. That's God. You see the wrong king for the job. That's Saul. And you see God raise up the right king in an amazing way. Think about this. In the book of Samuel, you have the announcement of the king given by Samuel, who's a lifelong Nazarite, who announces King Jesus in Matthew, John the Baptist, who's also a lifelong Nazarite. See the parallels? In 1 Samuel, the king must be refined. So David wanders around the wilderness and he's tempted about bread. Do you remember this? Because it's, will you take the bread for yourself? What happened with Jesus? He's also tested in the what? Wilderness. And what was the first temptation of our Lord? Will you turn stones into bread? There's a lot of parallels like this and God is showing, this is how I set up for the king. It's all coming together. And ultimately, there will be one covenant that rules them all, given to the king. We call that the Davidic covenant. And it controls every promise of God. Everything in God's plan is wrapped up into this one covenant. And if you can own this, and if you can fulfill that covenant, you can rule the world, be the final Adam, have the law of man on and behind you, the government upon your shoulders, you can have it all if you are that person who fulfills that covenant. And what do we learn in this striving? God has a plan and he pushes it forward. He overcomes earth. He overcomes Satan. He overcomes depravity. He overcomes Egypt. He overcomes the wilderness. He preserves the people in the land. He makes history decidedly turn so that his king will come. This is not just a nice story of, well, Noah built an ark. You build an ark. Cain killed his brother. You shouldn't do that. The Bible is much more than that. This is about the glories of God and what he's doing and all the epic things as his plan just goes forward and forward and forward. And we see, yes, God, God will make all things right. He really will. How powerful is this Davidic covenant? Think about Solomon, the opening of his reign. There's plenty of wealth. There's plenty of food. And you know what Solomon's name means? Shlomo, from Shalom, which means what? Peace. You're getting a taste of who Shiloh is in his reign. That's how powerful, that's how glorious it is. God can really make everything right. Well, we have the start, we have the striving, but then we have a problem. We have the third point, which is the setback. Now, I know we know that our God is undefeatable. Amen. But at one point, it looks like, and that's the key operative word, it looks like there's a setback. God has set everything up for this king. Even given a precious covenant that organizes and orchestrates all of his promises. 
But is there any king who can fulfill, any man who can fulfill the Davidic covenant? And we know the answer. It's no. David, for all his humility, he stumbles. We know that. Solomon, he has about a thousand reasons why he's disqualified. (laughs) No king is perfect. All the northern ones are terrible. And even the so-called good ones in Judah, like Josiah and Hezekiah and Joash, they all have such terrible flaws that actually, when you look at it from a historical and theological perspective, it makes Israel worse than it began. That's how bad it is. And so everything looks terrible. You can't have the Davidic covenant fulfilled. There's no one worthy to wield it. There are, the kingdom promises are not yet. In fact, it's so visible that it can't be the case. What happened after the rule of Solomon? The kingdom what? Split. It's as if God said, it will not be, and I will show you that it cannot be now because you can't even put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You can't reunite this kingdom. And God is still reigning. This is true, but he's reigning in spite of the kings instead of because of them. He reigns through his prophets, not through his kings. And if you say, can it get any worse? Yeah, of course it can. The northern kingdom, 722 BC, is exiled. The kingdom is starting to collapse. And you say, well, at least Jerusalem survived those. That's part of the south. Because Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah and Obadiah and Zephaniah, they all predict that you got to have Jerusalem to have a kingdom. So God preserved it. See, the kingdom can continue. God's plan can continue. And then what happens in 586? Jerusalem falls. And at this moment, everyone is wondering, so how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? And if you wonder, if you wonder the logic of this, just, just think about this. Before 1948, for hundreds of years, when commentators wrote about why there's no future for Israel, they said this, there's no nation. You can't have a nation. It's dead. So of course there's no future for Israel. It wasn't ever like, well, uh, like maybe God, because he's God, could put that together again? No, just, well, it's dead because history tells us it's dead. And then everything changed in 48 and a whole different mentality started to arise. Now, that's totally wrong reasoning of why you read your Bible the way you do, but you can understand what Israel's thinking. How are we going to have a kingdom when there's no what? Jerusalem. And there's no foreseeable way. How is this going to work? But even worse, in that worldview, at that time, people thought, if we're defeated, that means our God is defeated. And so they're not just wondering, how are God's promises going to happen? They're wondering, can they happen? Because they're wondering if their God is lost. And here comes Daniel. And Daniel's message is clear then. Daniel's book is not about how to have a good diet. You know, that's what somehow people read Daniel 1, the purpose-driven diet, Daniel's diet. Look, if you want to eat water and vegetables, good for you. That's fine. But that's not the message of Daniel 1. The message is through an uncompromising life, Daniel shows on behest of God, our God reigns. Even now, in this foreign land, he is still king. And in Daniel 2, it's not have more dreams like Nebuchadnezzar. No, the dream is a message that says our God's plan, not yours, Nebuchadnezzar, our God's plan, it moves forward. This is how it works. Daniel 3 says to Nebuchadnezzar, the same man, you cannot stop God's plan. 
You cannot halt it. And the more you try, the more you will realize that in the end, you tried to overthrow the plan of God. And what happens? You can't. You heat up the furnace, you throw the men in, and in the end, you meet the final one that will overthrow you. In Daniel 2, there is a stone that crushes the statue. Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm the statue. I made a statue of myself. And at the end of Daniel 3, what happens? The statue meets the stone. He says, I see the one like a son of man, a son of the gods. He met Christ, the one who would overthrow him. You cannot win, Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the ultimate climax of it all. Were it not for the grace of God, were it not for the ultimate sovereign decree of God, every man would just eat grass. And the mightiest ruler on the planet would be reduced to an animal were it not for the sovereign decree of God. Who has all the power? Not man, God. Heaven reigns. That's the message of Daniel. Not just nice stories, not just tame a lion. This is about the continuity of the sovereignty of God. And you say, what about all the prophecies? Well, they're so confusing. They have a point. And the point is this. This is the way the world is moving forward. And it will move forward unto one. We just read it in Daniel 7. Not to a king that is man, not to any kingdom of this world, but the one who rules all kingdoms. In fact, as Daniel says, he rules the kingdom of men. He rules all humanity. All the nations of the earth are subjected to his kingdom dominion. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Put it this way, if you're thinking about this message that Israel's proclaiming as God is striving to execute Genesis 3.15, and we said it over and over again on purpose, God reigns and he will reign. Here is the message of Daniel. He still reigns and he will reign forever. That is the message of Daniel. That is what Daniel cries out. And you need this message. You need it. When you see all these nations around us and in all the chaos that there is, what do we remember? Our God still reigns. Right now, he reigns over all the nations, and there is only one kingdom over man, and that is the kingdom of God. We remember that. And when you see crazy rulers and you see the devastation that they can wreck, you remember this, that no ruler can do anything apart from God. And no ruler has power. All their power is borrowed from the one who possesses all power, and that is God. And the proof of that is if God didn't give the order, you would just be eating grass like a donkey. We know that for a fact. And so that changes how we live and act and how we have perspective. And we understand the book of Daniel. You need the book of Daniel when you watch the news. And you see all that's happening. And you don't get overwhelmed, but rather you watch and see God is working out his plan, exactly like the book of Daniel said. This is the plan. This is the way it will happen, step by step by step by step. And I know that. And I know who wins in the end. And that's how I watch the news. We, we need the book of Daniel to understand how to live in these times, how to have a life without compromise in light of the fact that God is so sovereign. And ultimately, we need the book of Daniel in these times to direct us to the one who has always been prophesied of from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has all power, might, and authority, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel says, look to him. Whenever you're wondering if this world is out of control, look to him because all history is moving to him and he is the final, ultimate, definitive, and lasting king forever. That's what the book of Daniel says. You can think of it this way in just a closing thought. Daniel lived for a long time. 
and he lived for a long time away from home. He was deported when he was a teenager, perhaps younger than a teenager, and lived for sure over 80 years away from home. And his life was marked without compromise. And his life was marked by endurance. And his life was marked by perseverance. And you say, how'd he, how'd he make it so long? The book of Daniel. He didn't just write it. He lived it. And that's what got him home. Because he understood one truth. Our God still reigns. In a world that's falling apart, when I'm cast away from home, in all the terrible things of exile, our God still reigns. And he knew this, and he will reign forever. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for the revelation of Daniel. Prophecies that show you will reign forever and stories that demonstrate you still reign. May our hearts be encouraged by this, anchored into the truth, in awe of the ways that your sovereign might is shown, impressed that this is not just localized, but in every nation, in every tribe, in every tongue, and in every time. And may we learn these lessons well, and may it cause us to be like Daniel, the outcome of this, a people unto you who worship you, worship your son as we live faithful and uncompromising lives. In your name we pray, amen.